What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Wednesday, October 30th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we are at All Hallows Eve Eve. Two days until All Saints Day, one day until the ghouls and goblins attempt to refer me to a speech pathologist who could address this problem in my larynx. You might call it spooky if you were insensitive to my plight. Okay. I do have, however, a Halloween, an actual Halloween sentiment to express, to share, an insight to convey. It starts with the Jenny Slate comedy special. Jenny Slate, for some reason, keeps coming up a lot in the Google alerts all across the office. And so I found out about this special. It's a good special. She's funny. She's charming. But she believes in ghosts. There is a section about how her house is haunted. And she apparently thinks that's interesting enough to put in her special. And apparently everyone but me liked that part of her special. And I do think it explains things. You know, there are so many ways for a ghost story to be interesting. It could be a genuinely scary story. It could be one of the story that raises questions. It could be a story that explains odd things. Uh, ghost stories are fun to bond over. There are humorous ghost stories and historic ghost stories. The movie Ghost was a love story. So there are so many, many ways for a ghost story to pack them in, to hold one's attention, to amaze, delight, titillate, and entertain. But there is only one way for a non-ghost story to be interesting. And I actually think there might very well be zero ways. Because my take on ghosts are that, well, it's not a take, it's just a fact. There are no ghosts. Ghosts aren't real. Anything that anyone has ever attributed to a ghost, specter, or apparition can be explained by another actual phenomenon, and it's often a readily available simple explanation. Or, you know, it's also maybe true that ghost believers are lying or they're lying to themselves. Either way, it doesn't really matter to me because, again, there are no ghosts. That's my story, not a story, actual fact. Now, was that interesting? It really wasn't. And I definitely, based on that fact, I definitely can't have an anthology series on TV called Lack of Ghost Stories. I can't sponsor historic tours of my neighborhood at night, billed as the non-ghost tour. Come explore historic Savannah, coastal Charleston, as we examine the phenomena that locals have been speculating about for years and then carefully pick apart their misperceptions and later rest their foolish beliefs. No one would come to that tour. There was one guy ever whose shtick was not believing in ghosts or the supernatural. He was called the Amazing Randy. Actually, he called himself the Amazing Randy because no one else would call this guy amazing. He was pretty much a bore. In movies, there are tons of guys who don't believe in ghosts. They are always uptight, officious jerkwads like the EPA administrator in Ghostbusters, or else they're the guy about to get his head lopped off by a ghost in a horror movie. What? There are no such things as... If I were a screenwriter, here's what I'd do to correct that. I would have a hero, just a genuine bona fide hero, in a non-ghost story, explain as a line of dialogue, maybe as he repelled off the Nakatomi Tower, or after Elle wins the trial via her knowledge of showering after a perm, right? I would have her just say to another character, not for nothing, oh, by the way, ghosts don't exist. It's the only way we're going to move the needle on this. 
The true, boring, factual, simple thing has so much less to say about it. It is so much a poorer area for exploration and discussion than the wild, impossible to prove based on a belief thing. Which brings me to podcasts about socialism versus podcasts about, I don't know, slightly left of center moderation. Well, it, it actually doesn't bring me that. It did in my own mind. But let us just say that is an analogy for another day. Another day when we are visited by the spirit of Eugene V. Debs, who warns us from beyond the grave, I was totally wrong the whole time. I should have bought stock in Ford. On the show today, I spiel about the lieutenant colonel who tried to fill in Donald Trump's blanks. Hmm, probably sounds a little more disgusting than it really is. But first, Slate relaunches its historical documentary series, Slow Burn. You thought Nixon and Clinton were gangsta? How about Tupac and Biggie? The new Slow Burn host, Joel Anderson, stops by. Did you know season three debuts today? Well, if you don't know, now you know. Season three of Slow Burn is out. The Slate series that looks back at a historical event and finds things that you never knew, even though you thought you knew about the event, is now looking at the lives and deaths of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. The new host of the show is Joel Anderson. He, along with his producer, Christopher Johnson, have been working on this for months. Everyone here at Slate is extremely excited. I've listened to episode one. Slow burns out. Hello, Joel. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. How big a fan of these guys' music were you going in? So I was a huge fan of Biggie's. I thought that he was, you know, any top three list of rappers would have included him. Yeah. I was less excited about Tupac's music, even though I was a fan at times. Who would be the other two on the top three? Oh. Or make a Mount Rushmore. Give me four. Give you, okay. So in my lifetime, and yeah. I'm just saying my lifetime. Right. Okay. So Kendrick Lamar. We got Biggie. I'm going to put Nas on there. And well, I'm not putting Jay Z. It seems not, glaring. I like Jay Z, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I don't, I think this is more about like emotional connection. Right, right, right. right. And guys that like, rep, so, and then, yeah, guys that represent sort of an emotional connection and guys that like, if I were a rapper, I probably would be this dude. Yes. So right now I'm going between Black Thought of the Roots Ooh. and Scarface of Houston because I have to have somebody from Houston on the top. And just to orient our listeners, you're, you grew up in Houston. I did. Um, so is that, did they take, I know there's a huge Houston rap scene yeah. and, you know, UGK, UGK, UGK. And, and, and was chopped and slowed, what is that? Chopped and screwed. Was that from Houston? That is from Houston. I, I yeah. associate DJ that with Screw. Houston. Right. Yeah, the south side of Houston. A little purple drank, all uh -huh. this. Yeah. Okay, so, but did they take sides in what became known as the East Coast, West Coast world? I don't think so. They were really, you know, from my memory of it is that they were largely removed from it. And But I would say that growing up in Houston, most people there lean towards like the West Coast style of rap and like mm -hmm. Tupac. He just was sort of an irrepressible character and it was just hard to not people that like Tupac like really are emotionally attached to him. And it's not it doesn't have everything to do with his music. It just had the person he was. He's an icon. He's right. like the Elvis of hip hop in a way. Yeah. And you know, so there's this tattoo he has on his back, like it was a cross. Mm -hmm. And he got that in Houston. 
And I know plenty of people in Houston. Like, does it? It would be great to just follow up, and maybe that can be episode eight, following up on all these dudes I know from Texas who have that same tattoo on their yeah. back because Tupac got it. So they did. It's not like they chose sides, but they were much more passionate about Tupac's music. Myself, I was more of an East Coast dude. Like, mm-hmm. I just like I had a friend at at high school that brought me a Bad Boy mixtape. He went and visited New York, came back to Houston, and had a Bad Boy mixtape and played me all this like biggie stuff and i was like oh like i'm in with these dudes so every journalist comes into a big project like this with a question to answer what was the question that needed answering with season three of slow burn well i'll just say like internally like what can i tell people that they have never heard before Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Or, or or even better what's the best way to contextualize why we actually care about these guys right because like it's their names are so so much at the forefront of hip-hop. Like, we just say Tupac and Biggie, and we connect those two guys without even really thinking about, like, why that happens. Mm -hmm. And, like, you could reduce it to the fact that they both died at really young ages. But it goes beyond that. Like, they had an impact and a legacy that goes beyond that. And so sort of investigating, like, hey, wait a minute. Like, when we talk about them, we're always talking about their deaths. But, like, what... What about their lives is like really interesting and like why do we still care about these guys at this point? Well, what about resonances with today? Because that's mm-hmm. a slow burn signature. So you listen mm-hmm. to uh, the series on Watergate and it's like, well, it's talking about Watergate, but it's also really talking about what's going on right now. Yeah. Is this season doing that also? It's th- so it, it's a little less that right because it's not as neat. It's not it's not as on the button is is the impeach like impeachment <laughs> hearings and stuff. Right? There are some things because with Tupac. A lot of the things you heard Black Lives Matter say in 2015 and 16, these are things that you could trace all the way back to like Tupac's music in, you know, the early 90s or, you know, the music of that moment. Or even in the way that like the music industry moves now, like, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they sort of set a model for like what artists could be today and it didn't exist before them. You know, and so like they set that model. So when you see a guy like Nipsey Hussle, who, you know, RIP, you know, was killed recently. Right. But I mean, uh, so many of them are using that model. They look up to those dudes and like that's the sort of stuff that like when you when we're investigating their careers, hopefully you'll recognize it in the things that are going on today. But if he was on the vanguard of movements like Black Lives Matter, he was on the wrong side of what has become known as Me Too. Do you think that would have been his undoing in 2019? It's really tough, I mean, episode one starts with his rape trial, right? Yeah, no, right, absolutely. And we talked about that a lot. And yeah, man, I don't know how he would have recovered from that or like, you know, what form his recovery would have looked like. The thing is, though, is that like, just in this past week, we're like, Harvey Weinstein is able to go out to a comedy club. Not unmolested, though. <laughs> Not unmolested, right. Yeah, right. He's still, he's still reviled, but like, there yeah. are places that you can sort of exist and like have a career for yourself. Like, Louis C.K., right? Yeah. And so, like, given the circumstances of Tupac's case and, you know, the fact that he still, there still would have been people that would have said, oh, no, he's, you know, I don't believe it. I mean, man, Mike Tyson is a beloved. I was thinking of Mike Tyson, yeah. Today, right? You know, or a Derek Rose, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, people, you know, they tried to bring it. People tried to bring it up, and then eventually people just kind of shout you down. And now people are focusing on Derek Rose as a basketball player, right? I think that Tupac would have recovered, but it definitely would have hurt him, and it would have hurt his legacy in a way today that it didn't thin. Yeah. Yeah, or Bill Clinton, which was like uh, the revelation of the last yeah, episode yeah, of Yeah, right. Yeah, the Juanita Broderick thing. I mean, it's yeah. like, the thing is, is like, if, you, if you're a fan of somebody... You're not going to have like this rational, you know, analysis of who they are, right? Like, if you like them, you like them, mm-hmm. and you're probably going to like them in spite of some potentially bad things that they've done. 
You live in, where do you live, Bay Area? Yeah, I do. Cool. So you come here often to do the show. I've started to. I'm going to be back here. I I guess this is my part-time home now. And the here is Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is just full of everything Biggie. And if you go to the the Barclay Center, his name is in the rafters, which is crazy since he died a decade or so before, well, way more than a decade before the Barclay Center was built. Unbelievable. Is there, is just being in Brooklyn connect you to anything as far as Biggie? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, it's just hard not to. I'll tell a story in hopes that it will encourage these people to talk to me. Okay. So one Saturday, I was watching college football and writing, and I just got bored. Like, I was just like, I'm done with this. Like, and I looked up. <laughs> so Biggie's daughter owns a clothing store in Brooklyn. Uh huh. And so I had not been able to get her to respond to me. So I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go over to that store at the close of business and just see. Yeah. You know, just show up. So I take the train into Brooklyn because I was staying in Manhattan at that time. And I walked into their store and like Biggie's sidekick, Lil C's, is like just in there on the phone. And Biggie's, you know, first girlfriend, who's the mother of his daughter, is sitting behind the counter. And his daughter is sitting right next to her. And they're playing bad boy music. It's just loud. And it was just like, oh, this is just so much Brooklyn shit. You know what I mean? Like, it was just crazy. And uh, they made me leave. Uh-huh. <laughs> they made me leave. I didn't get an interview. But, but I Little just... C's in episode one, right? No, Chico. Oh, Chico. Chico, Chico Delvec, who was a member of Junior Mafia and was a so really he was there. Okay, so Chico was in the same crew. Chico with... was in the same. Yeah, we gotcha. We, nah, yeah, like and they, you know, they were cool or whatever. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, we I didn't mean, get can Chico Little put C's. a good word in with uh, you know those guys. It's Are they still good? We, we've tried, but I think yeah. that I, one thing in, is that Little C's has talked to everybody, man. Like, I look up every documentary book. That's the first person that people seem to go to. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many he's turned down in recent years, but I could only imagine that he is very tired of reliving that particular part gotcha. of his life. And so if he doesn't want to talk, I totally understand, and I would not want to you know, impose in that way. But if he does listen to this and he does want to talk, if Lil C's is a fan of the gist. Huge gist listener, huge I would listener. assume. Yeah, I, I would love to talk to you, Lil C's. I mean, I'm a any- big fan of your music, too, dog. We could just talk <laughs> about that. So <laughs> <laughs> He loves the Is That Bullshit segment with Maria Konnikova. Lil C's yeah. <laughs> loves to know if the science is real via double-blind studies. <laughs> Did you? Are you finding out new stuff that no one's ever known before, or are you just kind of recontextualizing and and amalgamating what is out there? I think more the latter. And you know, I will say this because I always I've started to have to think about this now that we're doing a media tour. Yes, and I'm so deep in it that a lot of times, like things that I may have not known at first, I've known them for like a few months now. So I don't I don't think of it as new information. Yeah. But you, someone who knew a lot about this, relatively a a lot for a civilian, it was new to you four months ago. I'm constantly, you know, learning new things about their relationship, about how close they were, you know, where they hung out. Just the image of Tupac, you know, making Kool-Aid steak and baked potatoes for Biggie at his house in L.A. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a story that I'd ever heard anywhere before. That's just like... I don't know how like compelling of information it is, but it's just new things like that, like new details that really bring them to life, you know? Are there elements of the mythology of these two guys that you have found to be mythology? Not true. Things that have attached themselves. I'm not talking about crazy conspiracy theories, right. although maybe maybe it's yeah, not crazy, yeah, right? right, right, right. Uh, I'm talking about things that people believe that your reporting shows, you know, we should not be believing this. If you think that there was legitimate beef between Biggie and Tupac, I think you're probably wrong. Hmm. I do think that, like, if there is beef, it only went in one way. Like, and maybe that's 
if you followed the music, you might think, oh, well, Biggie never really responded to Tupac and sort of ignored him, you know, whatever. But Biggie, from what we can tell, never really seemed to have a lot of animus for Tupac the whole way, right? And that's in spite of Tupac just baiting him at every turn. Like, I slept with your wife. You got your whole style from me. You were broke, you're fat, all this other stuff. Biggie was just a really soft-hearted dude, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, like... that's another piece of the mythology. You know, Biggie's not some big, dangerous, you know, dude, you know, big killer or whatever. He was just a lovable street yeah. corner kid who sold, you know, who sold drugs like a lot of people did in the 90s. He wasn't like some kingpin or anything like that. He was just a really charismatic, big, lovable dude. And yeah, man. So like that piece of it, I was just like, oh, OK. Yeah, Biggie was just somebody who could have been a if he had grown up in another context, he could have just been, you know, an accountant. You know what I mean? Do you, <laughs> yes, but you know the most. It, maybe not with numbers, with words. Yeah, right, right, right. Verbal, right. Uh, <laughs> the, my accountant's flow is unbelievable. <laughs> you should see his deductions just off the top of his head. Um, do you think, in terms of the legacy, I think I don't know. I'm far from an expert. Mm-hmm. Tupac's legacy seems to be tied up with image and mythology, mm-hmm. and a lot of respect for him as a rapper. Biggie's legacy. Well, I guess my question is this. Did one of them have more of an impact on the actual, you know, style of rapping and rappers that came after them? It, so it would be tough for anybody to be Biggie, right? Mm-hmm. Because like just because he was a good student, like in school, he was a very good student, always was a good writer. And it came very natural to him. It would be really tough to be him. But. Tupac, on the other hand, he was a, it, it didn't come as natural for him. He was a poet, he was a writer, but it didn't quite come the same way. But in terms of like packaging yeah. and everything else, like it'd be hard to argue that there were many more rappers that were more influential than Tupac in terms of like even just like sort of having his, you know, dabbling in like the fashion world. I mean, like, if you look, there's this great cover on New York Times Magazine where Tupac's wearing, like, this vest and these, you know, these jeans. And it's like, we talked to the publicist that put that look together. Uh-huh. And it's just like, yo, like, Tupac was just sort of this canvas for people, man. Like, you could make him do whatever you wanted to be. And you see a lot of other rappers aspire to that now. That they want to be, like, that guy that, you know, this is this visually arresting, charismatic. And they can't do it, but, like, he provides a model for people in that way. Whereas Biggie, it's just much tougher for anybody to have been him because to be him, you had to be extremely good at rapping and that's just something that not everybody can do right right so that's a good that's a good overall question how influential can the true savant be the true virtuoso you know if you don't have mozart's (laughs) talent how can you really try to uh approximate what mozart is doing yeah no you know i always think about this right in terms of like even like as a football player uh, you know growing up I, I was a running back, and I was like, man, what does Barry Sanders do that I couldn't do? Like, mm-hmm. I just was like, what, I was like, if Barry Sanders was playing in this high school football game right now, what would he see? You can't play the style of Barry Sanders because it's just impossible. Right. You know, you're more like You could maybe run as fast as Barry Sanders, yeah. and I don't know, you probably can't cut, but someone on earth can cut like Barry Sanders. Right. But no one can see the field yeah. and cut and run and right. spin and put it together and not even think about it like Barry Sanders. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's just like it's impossible. And so that's what I think about with a guy like Biggie or like when I you know, I mentioned Kendrick Lamar. Like it is really difficult to be those dudes. Like the greats, it's just really difficult to be them because they're great for a reason. But like you can approximate, you know, successful people but Mm -hmm. like truly talented people i think it's a little less 
it's a little less likely. I, I would like to write like Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah, I was thinking of him specifically. Yeah, and right. you could steal a line. Yeah. You could steal um, a phrase, not steal, but you know, be very influenced by a phrase or just the very fact that before he writes something, he'll read 35 histories about it. <laughs> right, right. Never, right. We're never going to be as good I, as that. It's always, yeah, this is yeah. very frustrating. And I was just like, I would, I, I've read all, all his writing. I would like to be him, you know, to do the things he does and, t- and write about the things that he does. But like, at the end of the day, like that dude is just that dude. Right. Joel Anderson is the host of season three of Slow Burn, which is out now. Joel, thanks a lot. All right, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. President Trump tweeted this morning that, quote, just a casual reading of the transcript leads everybody, his words in caps, to see that the call with the Ukrainian president was a totally appropriate one. This is a description and, of course, a mischaracterization of the partial readout of the conversation in which Donald Trump asked for a favor from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. The president tweeted yesterday, quote, all anyone has to do is read the transcript. Okay, it's not a transcript. And it's certainly not, as Trump tweeted on October 2nd, quote, an exact word for word transcript of the conversation. But up until now, what was left out can only be speculated upon. And it wasn't even seen as that crucial an enterprise in that there was lots of damning information in the transcript or partial transcript that they did release. Then came the testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman that the released transcript excluded crucial phrases. And what Vindman tried to do was reconstruct those phrases from memory and insert them into the transcript. This doesn't seem easy. You just heard the top of the show about ghost stories, right? I said in movies, there are tons of guys who don't believe in ghosts. And they are, do you remember? Do you remember the phrase I said? The phrase I used was, they're always uptight, officious jerkwads like the EPA administrator in Ghostbusters. And I'm a more or less straightforward talker. Okay, I'd say less, but... If I am a river that rambles, our president is a dam that's always about to burst. So Lieutenant Colonel Vimman's job was to look at voice recognition software printouts of the call and catch mistakes it made by trying to remember what was said. There's no physical recording, it turns out, of the call, at least on the Washington side. Vindman also, having pointed out recommendations that were largely ignored, He then tried to remember for himself what he said and remind the committee. Vindman attempted to perform a valuable service to our country. But I don't know if you realize how hard it is to fill in the blanks of Donald Trump's syntax. So let's let's try an experiment. Here now, I will play some of what Donald Trump has said and ask you to imagine a scenario in which certain words were left out and then it's your job to... Suppose, assume, speculate, correctly predict what should go in there where the words are missing. And in many of these cases, you probably have heard these sentences before. Can you remember? Does knowing the context help or hurt? Let us decide. Here is one clip in a speech in Michigan he delivered a few months ago in March. They're beautiful. They're big. Very deep. Record. Right? Record. Now. I guess you would say, if you were constructing the transcript, oh, record depth. Let us hear what he did say. Record deepness, right? Oh, no. Okay. Here is a harder one, unless you are among the initiated. (laughs) This is from the October 2017 Value Voters Summit. 
And we see it in the mothers and the fathers who get up at the crack of dawn. They work two jobs and sometimes three jobs. They sacrifice every day for the future of their children. They work every day for the blank in the future of their children, for the security in the future, the schooling in the future. Maybe we're just saying for the present in the future of their children. Let us hear what he really said. They sacrifice every day for the furniture and future of their children. They do. They, they go to work. The furniture of their children is everything for them. Now, let's go to his most recent extended remarks. These got lots of attention. You probably saw it, heard most of it. It was over the weekend as he announced that the Green Berets had killed ISIS leader Abu al-Baghdadi. Here's clip one. Well, I knew all about this for three days. Yes, sir. Yeah, we, we thought for three days this is what was going to happen. It was actually, look, nobody was even hurt. Our canine, as they call, I call it. Was injured and brought back. Our canine, as they call it, I call it. What do you think he calls it? A hero? A good boy? A well-trained example of American prowess? Let's see what Donald Trump calls a canine. I call it a dog. A beautiful dog. A talented dog. All right. Next one's from the same speech. Some good ones, some important ones, but they weren't the big names. I kept saying, where's al-Baghdadi? And a couple of weeks ago, they were able to scope him out. You know, these people are very smart. They're not into the use of cell phones anymore. They're not. They're very technically brilliant. You know, they use the Internet better than almost anybody in the world, perhaps other than... Huh. Okay, perhaps better than Russian hackers like Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. Perhaps better than Google engineers. No, wait, wait. Remember what he's saying. He's saying these are evil internet users. So he's going to compare it to someone really evil and vile. So maybe he's saying they use it better than almost anyone other than a really sophisticated pedophile ring. Let's see who he said might rival ISIS for weaponization of the internet. You know, they use the internet better than almost anybody in the world, perhaps other than Donald Trump. And again, from the same speech, let's say you play Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Your job is to figure out what he was saying and months later convey that to the House Intelligence Committee. Let's figure out what Donald Trump left out here. We have tremendous power in that part of the world. We have, uh, you know, the airport is right nearby. A very big... airport and very expensive airport that was built years ago okay words to describe an airport a big airport a functional airport a technologically advanced air a well-paved airport let's see what he went with you know the airport is right nearby a very big very monstrous very uh very powerful airport and very expensive airport that was built years ago now and this one this is good. I'm not going to ask you to fill in the blank about what he says after the word witch or before the word hunt. But here, I think I think after hearing him and playing this game, you're going to be able to predict where he's going to go with this word. Let's listen. This is the witch hunt, you know, their, their crooked chief is coming after the Republican Party. He's coming after the Republican Party as hard as he can, considering he's really, uh, he's been compromised very sadly. And because of the fact, as you know, I think... Sadly and sadly and what? You know, there's only really one way this could have gone. 
Uh, he's been compromised very sadly and badly. Sadly and badly. The sad dad, Wharton grad, a four-time dad. What about Tiffany? A five-time dad. And now he's a tad mad that you corrected him. Bad. Bad boy. Bad, talented boy. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He does a tremendous, monstrous job. He's a tremendous monster. He's Godzilla. I'm saying he's the podcasting Godzilla. Christina DeJosa, Gist producer, is hoping that Slow Burn Season 4 will be a 12-part series examining if Greedo shot first, taking it in a new direction, The Gist. I have been examining the computer-generated readouts of our perfect discussions, and all I can figure out is that the show often ends by someone saying... Oompa Loompa Diaper Poo Super Duper, you? Oompa Diaper Duper, and thanks for listening. <laughs>